0: Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Michael Willis. I'm one of the fellows here at the Middle East Centre at St. Anthony's College at Oxford University. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the fifth session in our Friday webinar series on the theme of the dictatorship syndrome. It builds off the book of the same name by the Egyptian author Al Aswani, who gave the opening lecture in the series. Tonight we take something of a a welcome break, I think, from a very real but depressing reality of a persistence and indeed entrenching of dictatorship across the Middle East and North Africa. To look at one of the very few countries in the region that has arguably moved away from dictatorship in the last ten years, that country is, of course, Tunisia. A decade ago, Tunisia was still very much under the rule of one of the most politically repressive regimes in the Arab world, but under the presidency of Zine El Ben Ali who had ruled pretty well unchallenged since 1987. As we know, Ben Ali was toppled in the popular revolution that took place in January 2011, and he was replaced by a recognizably democratic political system that now elects its president and legislature. Although rather shaky and imperfect, this system is still very much in operation today. Yet it is worth looking given the theme we're looking at in this term, to what effect such a long period under dictatorship had, which lasted much longer than Ben Ali, it lasted during Ben Ali's predecessor, the first president of independent Tunisia, Habib Bourguiba, and see how Tunisia has dealt with this legacy of dictatorship since making the move away from it. Now, to help us address these and other questions, I'm delighted to say we have with us Sami Zemni. Professor Sami Zemni, Is a professor in political and social sciences at the Center for Conflict and Development Studies at the University of Ghent in Belgium, where he coordinates and leads the Middle East and North Africa research group. Sami has written about a range of issues relating to the broader Middle East, but it is his expertise on Tunisia that we're calling on this evening. Sami has written extensively about the revolution of 2010 to 11 in Tunisia and its aftermath, and has become one of the foremost experts on the subject, and in fact, He is very familiar to our students on the MPhil in Modern Middle Eastern Studies here in Oxford. Those of you who are joining us from a program tonight will know him and his work well, because only last week I got all of the students reading his great article, The Roots of the Tunisian Revolution, Elements of Political Sociology, that he contributed to the Routledge Handbook on the Arab Spring. Now, Professor Zemini's work on the subject has been of particular value because I think of his willingness to move beyond the, usual, the more usual discussion of political events, to examine deeper and less well-covered issues and approaches that look at economics, culture, even urbanism. And the number of articles that he's, he's written on the subject include the Tunisian Revolution, neoliberalism, urban contentious politics and the right to the city also sensing the next battle, an overshadowed prehistory of creative dissent in Tunisia uh, and from revolution to Tunisianity, who is the Tunisian people, creating hegemony for compromise. And that's just a very small cross-section of what Sami has written on this. I think Sami is also highly unusual in being one of the very few scholars who actually carried out research in Tunisia before the revolution of 2011. There's been a lot of research a lot of writing on on Tunisia since 2011, but mostly actually all of it carried out by people who hadn't researched or even hadn't visited Tunisia before 2011. But it means that Sami is acutely aware of the dictatorship that operated under Zinal Abedin Ben Ali and the changes that have occurred since then. And this makes him really the perfect speaker to address tonight's topic. Now, before giving the floor over to Sami, I would like to say that we will have approximately half an hour for questions before we end this session, which will end sh- sharp at 6 p.m. So if you would like to ask a question, please type it into the-, the Q&A bar, which you'll find on Zoom and type in your question. doesn't matter when you type it in, but it- it'll be my colleague Osama Al azmi is waiting to collate and draw upon them and have them ready for Q&A session. So you can type in your question at any time through the session or afterwards or during the question things. And it'll be there, and hopefully, we'll try and answer as, as many of those as possible. But that's enough for me. I think the person we really want to hear from. It's Sammy, and I hand over to Sammy. Sammy Zemni, thank you.
1: Thank you, thank you, Michael, uh, for this wonderful introduction. For these uh, great words that sounded more like a laudatio, and is putting more pressure on me. Um, it's also a fact that some of my students are joining in on this webinar, and they are also very happy now to see you and meet you in real as uh, I have also assigned some chapters of your seminal book, uh, The History of, Modern, of the Modern Maghreb, uh, for my class. So the circle is round. And I would like also to thank uh, Stacy and Osama for the wonderful organization and St. Anthony's College for having me and giving me this opportunity to share some reflections on the Tunisian revolution. Now, I could start my talk with the apocryphal uh, anecdote on uh, Zhu Enlai, China's prime minister in the 1970s. When asked in a discussion with Henry Kissinger what he thought of the French Revolution, Zhu Enlai responded, it is too early to judge. We know now that Zhu Enlai was referring to the May 68 events in Paris rather than the revolution of 1789, of course. Dubious or not, the anecdote makes clear that ultimate judgment on uh, the Tunisian revolution, or any major political upheaval for that matter, is dependent on what exactly was awaited. Now, even if authoritarian reflexes haven't completely disappeared within certain parts of the state's institutions, if one wanted primarily to unseat Ben Ali's authoritarian rule, then it is fair to say that Tunisia has by and large thrown off the yoke of repression and coercion. Now, if one primarily wanted the revolution to address the issue of social and economic inequalities throughout the country, it is obvious that social justice and the demands for a life and dignity remain a faraway reality as the country's post-revolutionary economic track record is anything but rosy. Now, if we look upon uh, revolutions as a longer process that is stretched over time, Combining moments of major upheaval like we witnessed uh, at the end of 2010, early 2011 and also less contentious moments of mobilization that are dictated by the ebb and flow of political and economic protests then it becomes obvious that it is bound to be riddled with seemingly paradoxes and contradictory tendencies. Yes, there are free and fair elections, but a very fragmented political party system that is riddled with ego clashes and is growingly non-representative of the societal cleavages that are present within society. There is a massive consensus and discourse on the need to develop the marginalized areas of the country, but nearly a complete absence of any concrete economic plan that is implementable. There is also a growing fight between the parliament and the president, and importantly, a growing number of clear infringements on the freedom of speech, something that was seen as the major achievement of the revolution. In August of this year, an article in The Economist was titled, Democracy's Growing Pains. In Tunisia, cradle of the Arab Spring, protesters want jobs. Nostalgia for the old dictatorship is growing. It is true that a growing number of people in Tunisia are asking if the freedoms that were gained with the 2011 revolution were worth it. What meaning do people attach to a new democratic constitution and new political institutions while their buying power is deteriorating and unemployment, corruption, and marginalization are again on the rise? To say nothing, on the still looming threats of terrorist violence. On the other hand, Tunisia is still hailed as the rare or the only success story of the Arab uprisings amid a region still affected by civil war, humanitarian crisis and authoritarian backlash. Now it is impossible of course to tackle these different issues within today's short presentation. So what I want to do is to think through some of the issues of authoritarian rule its demise, its survival, its reassertion, in the light of al-Aswani's book, The Dictatorship Syndrome. Al-Aswani's crucial argument is that dictatorship is ultimately based on the voluntary servitude of the people as it wavers its freedom and thus submits to the will of an individual, a dictator. Al-Aswani likens dictatorship to a sick relationship between a ruler and his people as the ruled seem to be suffering from a mental illness." And I quote here, while El-Aswani does stress the biography and psychology of the dictator to understand the spread of dictatorship through violence, coercion, repression, trickery and deception, he nevertheless attaches much more importance to the people's receptivity of the so-called fascist germ turning citizens into many dictators. While there seems to be an incoherent leap from a mental illness to a disease spread by germs, what Alazwani downplays is both the massive violence of authoritarian rule, as well as the different forms of agency that people display. Alazwani's thesis is not completely original, other writers having made the case before, but what is interesting for our talk today is that the case has also been made by social science academics, in particular regarding the Tunisian uh, system under Ben Ali. One of the most original publications on Tunisia before the revolution was, without any doubt, Beatrice Ibous, La Force de l'Obéissance, which was published only in 2011, after the the revolution in English, in a slightly altered version, of course, under the name the force of obedience. Now, while Hibu also recognized the massive and growing repression throughout the 1990s, she nevertheless stressed the fact that the regime's domination was by and large accepted and even desired by a majority of the Tunisian population. She makes the claim through the fact that the Tunisian state and Ben Ali's regime was able to use the economy to its uh, benefits and based also on a specific Tunisian tradition of reformism and the Tunisianité, that has its roots in 19th century modernization policies of the Bay and that was continued, according to her, after the independence by Bourguiba in a more republican form. So the Tunisian people were not only subjugated, she asserted, but also voluntarily submissive. But if obedience, whether it's forced upon or wanted by the people, is that important as a characteristic of authoritarian resilience or dictatorship, then what can account for the major mobilizations that Tunisia has not only witnessed during the episode at the barricades in late 2010, early 2011, but has also witnessed ever since that moment encyclical cyclical waves of protest, ranging from civil society, urban mobilizations to spontaneous rural protests and demonstrations. The continuing mobilizations throughout the country are testimony to the fact that the Tunisian revolution was not only about securing political freedoms and new political institutions, but was and is as much about social and economic development. The fact that the massive control of the population and the means of repressions have made the wall of fear that existed before largely disappear shows that the people is not afraid anymore to challenge the government and its policies. We should thus not look at these continuous mobilizations as simply a proof either of the failure of the revolution as some journalists do, nor conversely look upon it as a proof of the vitality of the nascent democracy, but rather as a struggle, an ongoing struggle over the form and the course of that revolution. What we need then is to disaggregate the notion of the people by returning to the events of the revolution and then fast forward again to the current situation. Mohamed Bouazizi's ordeal was, in my opinion, not so much the starting point of the Tunisian revolution, but rather a rallying point for different types of protest, carried out by different spatially disconnected social classes to converge into a national revolt. While the seeds of that revolution can be traced back to the early 2000s, Even uh, perhaps uh, much earlier, Boazizi's self immolation triggered indeed a chain of insurrectionary events in which the people gradually emerged as a unified political actor. The emergence of the people as a more or less unified actor should not lead to a romantic analysis of the revolutionary events as if a good people was confronting its evil dictator. This is nothing but a depoliticized account of the events that obscures the nature of the events and renders them unintelligible. It cannot account for the different dynamics at work during the episode at the barricades, let alone the different types of mobilization of collective action action and collective mobilized actors involved in the uprisings itself and in the uh, contentious politics that followed after. Even though the economic and social contact was a crucial factor, the emergence of the people during the accelerated phase of the political turmoil was not an automatic response to specific social and economic conditions. These were already in place in the year before that, in the year before 2010, so it was in 2009 or in 2008, the same difficult uh, social and economic situation. So not only direct material interests lay at the basis of the mobilizations, but perhaps what I suggest, a moral economy in which the people saw Ben Ali and his regime as having betrayed the social ethic, the unwritten contract between the ruler and the ruled. The cry for dignity meant that not only geographical boundaries between the interior of the land and the coastal areas, but also social divides could be bridged. The first, largely spontaneous protests gradually politicized and the movement grew in numbers and power. It became also more diverse in its composition. In the end, the revolution was supported by a very broad alliance of different social classes of the Tunisian society. The combined force of the rural, marginalized, of the workers, the urban poor, the civil servants, the middle classes, and even a part of the economic elites, as well as a gradual disintegration of a part of the regime, especially the army and security services, was strong enough, apparently, to trigger the downfall of Ben Ali. However, it was only for a very short time that the encounter of individuals and social classes was able to overcome the cleavages of class and of identity markers that separated them. The interclass alliance that was prominent during the revolutionary events was an outcome of Tunisia's political economy in which during consecutive periods, the relations between state, capital and labor were thoroughly restructured. What became more and more obvious is that economic liberalization that was started in the 90s led to a perverse system of crony capitalism that for many observers amounted to a mafia type economy. Under the presidency of Bourguiba, so before Ben Ali, the state tightly controlled the economy, while the labor union and the private sector dealt in corporatist manner with the intrinsic contradictions of capital accumulation. While under Ben Ali, a largely muzzled labor union and a weak private sector assisted in designating and designing economic priorities. The implementation of these reforms did generate quite remarkable growth rates throughout the 90s and the 2000s. But contradicting the script of the international financial institutions, this did not lead to overall economic prosperity. Quite on the contrary, the reforms led to an accumulation by dispossession, An ever more repressive and violent process through which more and more people were dispossessed of their means of survival in difficult economic times. This development led also to a specific geography of uneven development in which some places were privileged over others and some groups over other groups. The politicization of the masses was made possible by a combination of these trends of economic marginalization, but also a feeling of marginalization and humiliation that's more subjective in nature. The cry for dignity, Karama, that stood central in the Tunisian uprising signaled also a want for redressing the many felt injustices. Obviously, while a rallying cry, the subjectivities underlying the feelings of injustice were quite diverse throughout the country. In the interior of the land, for example, especially in and around Sidi Bouzid, the cradle of the revolt, feelings of injustice were largely the consequence of a local political economy in which access to land played a crucial role. In the mining basin around Gafsa, people revolted against the extraction of natural resources, especially phosphate, that did not benefit the region, either in terms of investments or job creations. In the south, local economies thriving and surviving on trade, a lot of illegal trade also with Libya, the people revolted against the repression of their livelihood as the Ben Ali regime moved in to try to uh, take part of these trade benefits. In the urban coastal centers, middle classes also felt more injustice in the face of the many forms of corruption that had set the meritocratic ideal on which Tunisia was built. So even though the people remained a slogan that was used by all political actors across the ideological landscape, it became very early on obvious, already in 2011, that the people was actually a divided and fragmented people. What became visible, for example, in the mobilizations on the Kasbah Square in front of the offices of the prime minister, and those further away in the capital at the Kubat al Menza, was very clearly a class divide. While members of the popular classes, both rural and urban, were mainly protesting on the Kasbah Square, claiming radical political and economic change, it were mainly middle and higher classes assembling at the Kubat al Menza. Now what is important to add is that this divide is also defined by specific forms of consciousness and practices. We could see that while people at the Kasbah spoke mainly Arabic and used Arabic and Islamic idioms and symbols to define new forms of solidarity, the Islamists mobilizing actually for the first time under that name after the uprising, those at the Kaaba spoke mainly French, for example, and their slogans while they seemed to understand the necessity for welfare distribution, nevertheless advocated for neoliberal economic models, less the nepotism, of course, and the corruption of the Ben Ali's regime. They also turned very quickly against the growing power of the union, the labor union, the UGTT, that was awarded the Nobel Prize in 2015 as a campaign to stop what they saw as unwarranted strikes that would destabilize Tunisia even further. The class divisions that juxtapose spatially economic and cultural cleavages were becoming more and more obvious. But these cleavages, as important to note, are not so much referring to very clear-cut ideological differences. They are rather referring to specific ways of life that is growingly different between the urban centers and the rural hinterland in the interior of the country. Looking at the revolution from this angle, one can account much better for the specific trajectory that Tunisia has taken since then, a process made up of both continuity and disjuncture. In the economic field, as I already mentioned, it is obvious that the Tunisian revolution has resulted in more of the same than any new genuine plan for development. While there was and still is a general consensus to help to develop the marginalized areas of the country, not one coherent plan has been introduced in parliament, has been discussed by the politicians, let alone implemented. In general, the same policies that were applied under Ben Ali were simply renewed, leading to an even more difficult economic situation with a growing debt, failing public finances, skyrocketing unemployment, and an informal market that is today estimated as being as big as the formal economy. Obviously, these policies were not able to address the major root causes of the revolution and are pushing the country further away from the ideals of the revolution and are also emptying the new constitution of any meaningful content. The approval of the constitution in 2014 and the political compromise that followed between Nida Tunis and the Islamist formation at Nahda was indeed a historical compromise between the forces that defended Bourguiba's specific modernizing legacy and the forces that constituted its strongest and longest oldest challenger, the Islamists. While well, this compromise seemed reassuring to many Tunisians five years ago, after the confusing and mitigated results of the Troika government that took power after the first free elections in 2011, many others wondered how a new Tunisia could be built when the politics of the past were regaining steam. Today, this compromise seems to be gone. After the disappointment of Beji-Kaid's uh, sepsis policy to turn towards an for many Tunisians, both those wanting to revive Bourguiba's Desturian ideas, as well as Ben Ali's more di- dictatorial version of it, all vied for attention. And I don't know if it's ironically but it seems to be one of the most radical voices in the debate that seems to be attracting more and more voters disappointed with the democratic transition. Abir Musi, the president of the Free Desturian party is a sworn enemy of Anada, which she refuses to call by its name instead using derogatory terms such as the Ikhwan, eh, the brothers, the Daesh people, or even the terrorists. By rejecting the post-revolutionary regime and claiming openly its active role in Ben Ali's dictatorial regime, Moussi is betting on convincing a majority of voters that it is time to close the democratic gap and return to good old authoritarian rule. Abir Moussi might be a symbol of the comeback of Austrian regime politics, And she's not the only politician that seems to radicalize and opt for a strategy of polarization. If the general security situation has clearly improved since the wave of attacks in 2015, there are still occasional attacks that prove that also a radical and sometimes violent Salafi ideology continues to gain followers. As long as a political system does not reflect the cleavages that exist within society, it is highly unlikely that a growing number of people that do not feel represented by any of the parties and who are not really interested in in voting anymore in the elections, it's highly unlikely that these people could be brought into the national fold. On the contrary, a growing number of people seem to feel more marginalized and are devoid of any future in the country. Hence, also, a growing number of youngsters who want to leave Tunisia. For some of them, illegal migration to Europe might end in even more hardship, and more a general feeling of utter uselessness, leading, for some, as seems the case in the attack on the Cathedral of Nice last month, to terrorist violence. Finally. While it is without any doubt true that the major achievement of the revolution is to be found in the constitutional and legal anchoring of civil, political, and even economic, social, and environmental rights, it is also true that old repressive laws from the Ben Ali era are reinstituted so as to prosecute individuals for exercising their right to freedom of expression. Just three days ago, Amnesty International found that at least 40 bloggers, administrators of widely followed Facebook pages, political activists and human rights defenders have faced criminal prosecution between 2018 and 2020, simply for publishing online posts that were critical of local authorities, the police or other state officials. And then finally, there's also COVID. There is indeed growing concern that the state and especially its repressive institutions are using the pandemic to reconsolidate itself and play a more central role in the political field. Police forces are reconquering spaces that they had lost throughout the decade. And yes, without sounding too gloomy, Tunisia is indeed facing a major crisis today on several levels it's political, it's social, it's economic, and it's also environmental. More and more conflicts are about land, water, and climate change. Perhaps this crisis has never been so serious and dangerous as it is today. But ladies and gentlemen, if Ala al-Aswani's father warned President Nasser that achievements had no value if not accompanied by freedom, then Tunisia today seems to turn around the warning by saying that freedom without any achievement is not real freedom at all. While there is a danger that the Tunisians might forget about the importance of that freedom, there is also hope. Hope can still be found in the small victories that people's initiatives from El Camur to El Jemna are recording on a daily basis. Yes, perhaps again, the future lays in the arms of the people and not, alas, in the hands of the politicians in parliament or government. I thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to your questions during the Q&A. These were just short reflections to, of course, a larger issue based on my reading of Ala El-Aswani's book. I thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Sami. And for a masterful summary of the Tunisian revolution, its aftermath, challenges and dictatorship in such a short space of time, that was really a tour de force. Thank you very much indeed. Just a reminder that we, please do, if you have any questions for Sami, anything about Tunisia or, or reacting to anything he said, please do use the question and answer function that you'll find on Zoom. We're looking forward to having your questions. But uh, before we move on to that, I'd, I'd like to uh, take advantage of my position as chair just to ask a few questions and follow up on a few things with Sami. You bring up the question of nostalgia, Sami, and you refer, of course, to Abe Moussi, this party, which is basically sort of saying, bring back the old regime. As you said, there was a big wave with Beji Sebsi. I mean, Beji said he used to campaign with pictures of Bourguiba on his election literature. To what extent is this a genuine desire to go back to a real dictatorship? Or is it a sort of a, a vague nostalgia and way of expressing unhappiness with the current state of affairs? But if really given the choice, most Tunisians would not want to go back to how it had been under Ben Ali. And as a sort of follow-up question, you get people saying, well, Ben Ali wasn't great, but we really want to go back to Bourguiba, even though Bourguiba was almost as oppressive as Ben Ali in his way. So is it genuine or is it just some sort of rather, rather sort of soft nostalgia for the past?
1: Thank you, thank you, Michael, for that, uh, that question. It's, it's difficult to, to answer because you, you, I should be able to talk to much more people than I have done over the last few years. Uh, but based on, on, on my talks, I think it's, it's rather a vague nostalgia. Nobody really wants to go back to um, a real dictatorship like it was under the coercion and repression of Ben Ali. However, there is this nostalgia for two things. It's one, the idea that they have that a strong leader can more easily move things on the economic uh, field. And of course, jobs is the most important thing today for the Tunisians. So they think that um, a stronger leadership would be able to come up at least with a plan to create more jobs. So they, assess, they make an association between uh, the old regime, the ancien regime, and a certain uh, efficiency in, in organizing uh, the economy. So it's that that plays out, and tied to that, this a possible feeling of, I would say, security. There is uh, less ambiguity, of course, under the, di- under, uh, the dictatorship of uh, Ben Ali. There was no ambiguity; everything was very clear, or uh, people were giving. Uh, what needed to be thought, basically. And for a lot of Tunisians, what they are witnessing now in the beginning, it seemed that for many, uh, democracy was too slow. Democracy was messy. Democracy pushed people into um, alliances and compromises uh, that uh, they said or they felt was not the best response for the challenges that Tunisia was facing. The last couple of years added to that is that Tunisia is also prone, just like many more established democracies, to all kinds of more populist type of politics and politicians. So indeed, when uh, a major network owner, media tycoon, is running for presidency, you can ask yourself the question whether this is the ideal person to rule the country, right? And actually, his challenger, and, uh, who then became president, was a professor in constitutional rights, who basically has no political movement behind him, who had no real campaign, uh, and especially not money, so it's, it, it was quite extraordinary that he, that he was elected. So it showed that a lot of Tunisians were turning away from the classic uh, political leadership that was vying for uh, the highest office. So it is in that respect that I still see the nostalgia, the nostalgia of, you know, having more efficient and and leadership that is clear without ambiguities and that moves forward. And I don't feel a desire to go back to the coercive and the repressive measures of the Ben Ali regime. And then the difference between Ben Ali and Bourguiba, that's indeed also an interesting one. I mean, uh, from, Early on, the, the Desturian ideals were ascribed to Bourguiba, and Bourguiba, even though he was also, of course, very authoritarian uh, during certain periods, um, all this has been washed away a little bit. It has been massaged away so that the difference between the good Bourguiba and the bad Ben Ali could be made. So it's actually quite surprising that someone like Abir Musi who is actually very clearly saying that it's not about Bourguiba, that it's about Ben Ali, is quite astonishing. And that, um, I mean, her, her group is not the biggest one in the parliament, of course, but uh, it's growing and, and she's not doing, uh, you know, she, she's, she's, uh, she's one of the main uh, political uh, figures of the country these days.
0: Thank you. We've got a number of questions coming in. I see that they're, they're coming in. I'm going to now hand over to my colleague Osama, Lazamy who's going to manage the questions. Thank
2: you, Michael. And thank you, Sammy. I mean, this has been a a wonderful uh, sort of session in which you've brought so much information uh, and put it together so sort of elegantly for us in a matter of 20-25 minutes. And in keeping with that, I think you have some excellent questions from great scholars on Tunisia, actually. I'm going to start with Anne Wolf, um, who, because you were talking about Abir Moussa a moment ago, she has a a short question, which is how do you explain that Abir Moussa did so badly as a candidate during the 2019 presidential elections, um, but she and her party is so popular right now. And so we'll start with that. And there are a couple of other questions in a moment.
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you, Osama, and thank you, Anne, for the question. Well, um, I mean, when you look at the results, it was very fragmented. She didn't do that bad. She came actually before many others who were uh, much more established and who, at least on paper, were were thought to be uh, politicians with a larger uh, following. Now, why, she was quite new, I think, to the, um, to the field uh, back then. She, of course, started to use that very hard and radical uh, discourse in, in the months before the uh, elections. But, yeah, she couldn't, I think she came in fourth, which, you know, uh, it's, it's not, that, uh, not, not that bad, I think. She, how can I say it? Um, there's not a lot of uh, Tunisian politicians that are, incredibly popular with the population. So uh, she's one of them. And her, uh, I think her followers are growing because she was able after the elections within the parliament to to become like the leader of the opposition, because she was attacking and so much. But this is because I think she's uh, politically astute, at least in what the French would call la politique politicienne, so like the, the daily business of of doing things in Parliament. I'm not really sure whether her movement is really a societal uh, movement that has a broad following. That is something different than people that might vote for that party when there are elections. It's it's more of a of, a, of an astute politician that is crafting a place for herself within. Uh, the Tunisian political discussion these days.
2: In a sense, I'd like to link this to um, a question of Mohamed Salah al Omri, and uh, he asks about populism. So uh, again, a, another colleague of ours in the Oriental Studies Department. But I also want to link this to sort of global trends of populism. We've obviously seen them quite heavily over the last half decade at least, whether in Europe, uh, the Orban's of the world, in, in our own country, of course and uh, across the Atlantic, most notably in Donald Trump. And I, I wonder what sort of aura these politicians have in, in a place like Tunisia. And I want to uh, link um, um Salah's question. He asks, I wonder what you make of the rise of populism and its developments into uh, some form of authoritarianism. Uh, I have in mind in particular, what I call, uh, in a recent article published in Nawat, populist authoritarianism taking Erdogan as a model, but with Tunis in mind.
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you for this question. And I also want to say hi to Mohammed Sara Humri. It's, um, I think the Tunisian public is not that different, I think, than the uh, publics in uh, more established or longer uh, established democracies in the sense that there is a certain, uh, they're fed up with uh, many of the politicians who haven't done well, whether it was in in, in the Troika government, whether it was technocratically appointed governments, whether it was Nida Tunis, you know, the things didn't change that much for them. So they are open now for this idea of, well, if the classic politicians cannot do it, you know, let's call in some other people. They might have better ideas. So um, when then, like I said, um, uh, Karwi was running for uh, presidency as the owner of television station uh, Nesma, uh, or even, I mean, it's not necessarily uh, populist, but uh, if a professor in constitutional rights suddenly says, I'm gonna run for presidency because I think I can do it better than the others, without having any political movement behind you that would, you know, give the the president then being a a mouthpiece for a certain cleavage or a certain group that exists within society, there is this growing disconnection. And populists find it now easy to try to attract the attention of uh, the Tunisian voters. So indeed, if you combine these authoritarian reflexes that are coming back mainly within the um, security forces the police etc and if you combine them with all kinds of politicians who or people who think that uh, they can save the country but basically have no social movement or no political movement behind them yeah then you have you know this this dangerous cocktail of populist authoritarianism that can can take hold in the country that's that's uh, something that is indeed a possibility and for some under, uh, especially under COVID now and under the pandemic, is materializing. There's more and more people complaining about the ways that police officers engage with the public, with the citizens, which was uh, not uh, like that even last year. They're more aggressive, uh, they're, they use again more these authoritarian reflexes that they didn't have five years ago because the public would not accept it anymore.
2: You actually um, touch on a point which, again, links to another question that's been asked specifically with respect to the police. Um, Teresa, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Aromanova asks, um, thank you so much for a great lecture. I was wondering whether you could please say a bit more about the police regaining its lost position lately.
1: Yeah, well, this, this is very hypothetical because because of the pandemic, I have not been able to travel to Tunisia this year. But of course, I was following the the pandemic to see how Tunisia was dealing with it, and also because my parents were stuck in Tunisia during the first lockdown. Uh, So we were constantly uh, referring to one another. And uh, then I started to talk to many people um, online, of course, who who were in the country, and they started noticing that, uh, seeing how the police would become more present, more aggressive in its uh, tone, it, the way it verbalized people, the way it approached people, and using these you know, old school tricks that were present under Ben Ali's regime where there is basically the, the usurpation of, of their power rights without taking into account the, the new freedoms that uh, every c- citizen in Tunisia should have. And they use, of course, this pandemic and the lockdown that was also installed in Tunisia as a way to reclaim, I would say, certain areas of power that they had lost before. To say, you know, we're in charge, you know, we're the boss, basically. So instilling again, a little bit of fear within uh, the larger public.
2: Thank you. Um, so. The questions are coming in thick and fast and and we really appreciate everyone's engagement and just apologies in advance if we can't get to your question, because uh, we're going to conclude within an hour, so to speak. So in the next 15 minutes or so, uh, I, I wanted to um, put a question from another colleague, uh, Eugene Rogan, actually. There are so many great questions, but um, I thought this one kind of spoke to mm-hmm quote-unquote Tunisian, Tunisian exceptionalism as an argument. So is Tunisia an exception or a role model for Arab politics moving forward? Popular demands for accountable government continue to emerge in Algeria, in Sudan, in Lebanon, in Iraq, but the army or sectarian leaders or le pouvoir seem to obstruct uh, their legitimate demands. Is there a Tunisian model for others to follow?
1: Thank you uh, for that question. Thank you, Eugene. Um, I never really thought that Tunisia is an exception. There are certain variables, if you would compare to other countries that were were pushing Tunisia to be more inclined of succeeding in the revolution, but I don't see it as an exception, especially what was going on today in in Algeria and even in Morocco to a certain extent, Uh, things are changing and, and moving. Is Tunisia then a role model Um, I wouldn't really say uh, a role model to emulate, but something to be studied. I mean, I think both the leadership as uh, the the people mobilizing in in Algeria and in other countries in the region can learn from what has worked in Tunisia and what has not worked in Tunisia or worked less well. So I, I do think that uh, people can look at it as not something to fully emulate, but at least to get inspired by. And I remember a talk I had with some Egyptian people who, of course, are now living under, yeah, again, under a dictatorship that, in many ways, is much harder and harsher than uh, that of uh, Mubarak, who still told me that, uh, in Arabic, they say, uh, is Tunisia, so the, the secret password is Tunisia. So they still keep on looking at Tunisia acknowledging that nothing it's not perfect at all in Tunisia uh, things are not perfect far from it but at least there are certain uh, elements in, in the in political change uh, that can be uh, a source to draw lessons from in, in the other countries
2: right um, thanks again I think a lot of us look still hopefully towards Tunisia. And I I liked the fact that you concluded your talk with a sense of hope as well. I wanted to switch gears and and talk about economics briefly. Uh, We have two questions, which I want to kind of merge on the economic front. Uh, One comes from Matt Gordner. He says, thanks for a wonderful talk. Uh, I wonder though, what you make of the fact that during the anti-austerity, Fesh Nastenu, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, and Wain al Petrol movements, the international community did nothing to dissuade repression. So that's the international community and its role in uh, sort of looking the other way while anti-austerity measures were taking place. And then Paul Arts from the University of Amsterdam asks, how would a much-needed alternative economic program actually look, creating many, many jobs in the first place? Like, what does that actually look like? And I think both of these are, you know, if you can answer these questions, you know, <laughs> you've solved the problem.
1: Yes. <laughs> I wouldn't be sitting here. I would be in Tunisia implementing a plan. <laughs> Creating jobs. (laughs) No, thank you for these uh, questions and and very difficult questions. Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not completely sure whether I understood the question of of Matt. So it was uh, why the international community and the Tunisians abroad did not do anything against the repression that was used against the movements against uh, austerity laws.
2: Yes. So, um, you know, during the anti-austerity movements, um, the international community did nothing, according to Matt.
1: Yeah, uh, well, um, what is the international community and what does it want, right? Um, for me, it was obvious very uh, early on that um, the, the international community is not one and undivided, of course, but when we look at them in for the Maghreb and for Tunisia, at least the major player is still the European Union. And you know, when you look at all these uh, nice words and discourses and speeches that they had given in 2011, it was obvious that in 2012 and 13 is what it was more uh, business as usual. So, I mean, as long for them that, that 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 there are democratic institutions, democratic elected governments, they might think I presume that uh, repression sometimes is necessary when societal movements uh, cross a certain certain line. Now, I don't agree with that personally. Uh, I think that many of these movements should not be dealt with uh, as severely. And this goes to show again that, you know, sometimes uh, they are quite reluctant uh, to really be repressive. And uh, on other occasions, they have used indeed violence to disperse uh, demonstrations, to go against uh, certain anti-austerity movements, etc., etc. So the international community. I don't think that Tunisians really wait or await a lot from uh, that international community. It's, it's up to the Tunisians themselves to try to uh, change uh, things and to um, to confront that repression. And then the most difficult question, of course, uh, of my colleague and good friend, Paul Ars, whom I spoke to this week and last week on another webinar, and he keeps on asking me that same difficult question on how would that look like? Now, let me just give an example. Last year, I had the uh, opportunity to talk for about two, three hours with the former President of the Republic, Monsaf Marzuki, who took power uh, after the first free elections in 2011. And I asked him that question. I said, you know, why was it so difficult to implement any kind of political or economic plan uh, that would at least, you know, be beneficial to the country and hopefully also create jobs? And he said that there were quite a lot of plans, but it was just impossible to put them into place for different reasons. His plan was to firstly to redraw the map of the Tunisian regions and uh, divide Tunisia in four major areas and gear economic and social policies to these four areas very specifically because they needed, according to him, different uh, approaches because they had different weaknesses and different strengths eh, in terms of human capital people that are working there water soil richness etc cetera, etc cetera. and he said he had a plan for that but he he faced major obstacles but these are his words of course eh? he said first of all within uh, the government there were different positions the major opposition to this plan was basically another The Islamists were actually against it because it was based on, I would say, social democratic economic policies that were going against what the international financial institutions were asking for. And the Nada wanted to be a very good student of these international financial institutions and followed the, let's say, the Washington Consensus free market. It's up to the the private sector to create jobs. It's not the government. Monsaf Marzuki said that he thought that Tunisia should do just like after independence become again some sort of developmental state where the state would be a major political uh, economic actor trying to attract uh, investments and invest and create jobs. Of course, this was not a return to socialist policies of the sixties. This was really embedded in a larger view where there would be you know, an interaction between the private sector and the public sector. So he said, first of all, Ennahda was really stopping it, pushing again uh, for the old policies to be continued with some addition of subsidies that would be channeled to the poorest regions. But these were very unproductive. They just disappeared like like snow uh, for ice. He also said that indeed the international community and for him in the first place, it was the European Union and the US were also very reluctant for, of that plan, for example. Why? Because they both thought that no, the uh, way to go for Tunisia was to open the borders for the free market. That this was a solution to the problems of the country. And that of course ended up in a, what they called in tunisia a nos-nos policy a half-half policy where you would have certain elements implemented that are part of the jargon of of the free market ideology but at the same time they kept in place all kinds of uh, old systems of redistribution like the subsidies for petrol subsidies for food staples like uh, bread etc etc which of course became more and more an incredible burden on the public finances pushing down even more the uh, economic situation of the country. So do I have a plan personally? No, but I do know that in Tunisia, there's a lot of creativity. There's a lot of ideas. And if nothing has worked until now, why not try it, is my contention. And I think whether when you look at those countries in the Global South that have been successful in economic growth for the benefit of the largest parts of the population, you always see that the state has played a crucial role. Think, for example, of the Asian tigers. This was not done by the free market alone. It was because the state played an incredibly important role in uh, organizing the economy. And that's what more and more Tunisians are actually asking for. You see that in the ways they communicate and what they demand when they confront uh, certain projects that are being implemented and so on and so forth. I hope that was a short answer.
2: It it was remarkably uh, sort of wide-ranging. And so, sadly, we have very limited time. Uh, We've got maybe another three minutes or so And I I wanted to maybe take this opportunity to just give the Islamists a bit of a showing because that's kind of my area of research. Um, So we have a couple of questions and I'm going to merge them uh, sort of uh, myself. Salma Taqi asks, how far did the Jasmine movement go under the Islamist regime? Very concise question. And Robert uh, Uniak asks, again, he says, thank you for an excellent talk. Uh, Nahda has, has regularly accused Abir Musa of being an Emirati stooge. And she links uh, another with Erdogan's Turkey. And so, uh, you know, in that sort of uh, situation, what do you think of, uh, how, d- how does this relate to Turkish Emirati strategic competition in the region? And, you know, the Emirates have been very important in kind of counter-revolutionary movements throughout the region, to a certain extent in partnership with Saudi Arabia. It would be interesting to get your assessment on that sort of influence from the outside. So we've got the Turkish and the Emirati axis here. <laughs> Thank in, you. in in 2 minutes if possible <laughs> yeah,
1: oh, yeah now <laughs> i wanted to say that it, it is becoming uh, clearer mm-hmm. huh? so uh, this year it has been becoming more and more obvious because you also see it through the media uh, both of the Emiratis and, and and Turkey, how they differ in in talking about Tunisia. Eh? So they both have their favorites. That's uh, that's becoming more and more obvious. So indeed, they're trying to um, push their agenda. And the Emiratis have been trying to push their agenda since 2011, since uh, 2012. So it, it's it's not that new, but it has become more uh, in the open because there is this fight between indeed Abir Moussi constantly attacking the president of Anada still, Rashid al hanushi and it's true, it's his, uh, it's his trip to uh, Turkey in January that triggered this, this tension, and she used that as uh, a way to uh, criticize him and um, to, to launch an attack. And it's quite a hard attack, I have to say, because she's not only, uh, you know, attacking him personally and the movement. But I do think that because of that, Enada is for the first time since it was created in the nineties, so not only after the revolution, having serious internal problems. That does not mean that throughout its history it never had internal discussions, but. Today, there's more and more people within en- Ennahda putting down uh, their, um, their position or their uh, membership card of the party. So it's, it's very important to look there where this will lead to, because it's not impossible that Ennahda might implode and that different Islamist parties uh, could emerge afterwards. So they're using their international contacts and their international backup to uh, enforce their position or to to make their position within the country stronger. I'm not thinking that either Turkey or the Emirates are really controlling Tunisian politics, but it's also vice versa that these Tunisian politicians use these international networks to have more leverage in the Tunisian political system these days.
0: Thank you very much, Sammy. Unfortunately, our, our hour is up. We have plenty of questions coming in, which is an indication of how much you got people thinking. And there was apologies to those people who weren't able to ask a question, but we we're able to, on top of having a wonderful presentation, you've, uh, you've answered a whole range of questions. That, by the way, is probably the best answer I've heard to the, the ever-present economic question. That nobody seems to be able to answer, so thank you. That was, that was the best and most comprehensive, most optimistic one I've heard in a good while. But thank you, Sammy. But thank you for a a wonderful talk uh, and for responding so well to the discussion. It's been great having you here. And thank you so much for joining us. And thank you very much to our audience. And we look forward to you joining us again next Friday. We'll be going back to our more usual time of five o'clock slightly earlier um, to carry on talking about the dictator syndrome. But from tonight, some message that dictatorship can end it can move in the right direction, even though in a rather shaky, ramshackle way, there is a a future um, post-dictatorship in the Middle East. And Tunisia is a very good example of that. Not one necessarily, as Sami says, to follow or emulate, but to study and learn from. Thank you, Sami. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you. Good night.
1: Thank you all, and good night, everybody.